And would you open your Bibles this morning? We're going to go to Luke chapter 1 again. We've been here for two weeks already. This will be the third week. I hope you don't mind things like this uh, as we are going to just continue to dig into one portion of the Gospels that speaks of Jesus coming and uh, hopefully highlight more parts of the Gospels of Jesus coming and uh, just uh, prepare us or help us uh, celebrate correctly this season. We're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read uh, verses 68 through 79, all the way to the very end of that chapter. And again, this is actually before Jesus has been born, but uh, Mary is pregnant with Jesus. Uh, she goes to uh, see John, and then John is born. Uh, she goes to see not John. She goes to see John's mother, Elizabeth. Then John is born, and John's father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, says this. And he's actually, it's very interesting to me. I don't know how often you pay attention to this, but as his son is born... He actually spends more time talking about what's going to come with Jesus than he does with his son. He does give a little bit of information or talk a little bit about his son. He looks at it. You'll see where those verses come in at. But he spends more time uh, speaking of what God is going to do or what God is unveiling with his, uh, with his son coming, with Jesus coming in the world, or as, as Zachariah is speaking of, the Messiah coming. Let's read together. Zachariah is going to say these words, verse uh, 68, Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's a big, long sentence with lots of things in there. Hopefully, as we keep reading through it, it becomes more apparent what Zechariah is saying. Let me continue, verse 76. And you, child, now he's addressing his son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." Lord Jesus, again this morning, we are unashamed and we, are, uh, uh, we don't want to uh, be mistaken about anything ourselves, and we'll just say it out loud. We are in need of your Holy Spirit to come and open this word to us. We need to learn from your word. We want to learn from your word. It is given to us as truth and declares to us who you are, who we are, and what you have done for us, and of course, what you'd like from us. So teach us this morning, Father, I pray again from these, these verses and from all of your scripture, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So when we celebrate Christmas, we look at these quaint little scenes, often drawn probably much happier and much more, uh, much more uh, sanitary and much more quiet and much more peaceful than what it probably actually was for a first century young couple to give their first birth, first time baby born in uh, some kind of uh, very unsanitary environment at, uh, in the middle of a, a situation that was, I'm sure, full of confusion and full of all kinds of uh, unsureness of what's going on, uh, probably some anxiety, I would suspect, 
I don't know, I've not done this myself, but I'm guessing many of you uh, mothers here, as you approach the birth of a baby, maybe your first one especially, I'm sure there's some things where you're not sure what's going to happen or what's, how this is going to work out. Maybe some fear of, of uh, where that's going to go. And remember that they were not at home, actually. They were away from home. But as we look at these scenes and we think of this little precious little baby, and we love babies. We have lots of babies here. I'm so grateful that we have lots of babies here at this church. And we look at the, and we think of all the, the, the sweetness of a baby, but the reason for this great, tremendous celebration that comes about is actually not so much that a baby was born, although that's the beginning of it, but it's what, the, what was going to happen with that baby, right? That, that when we sang songs of it this morning, and it happened from the very beginning of Jesus' birth, the wise men, they came from the east, and they went to Herod, first of all, they said, where is this king that has been born? So you see an immediate contrast, right? You see these unsanitary, kind of very unusual situations for babies to be born in, and it's contrasted by the fact that when people begin to talk of him, they refer to him as a king, as some kind of powerful uh, uh, person that was just born that deserves uh, worship and attention and going to and, and giving of gifts and traveling so far from. A king has been born. So all of those things we have to kind of reconcile. And before we go on this morning with the reality that Christ Jesus has come and, and the exhortation to really fulfill, uh, really fully embrace or, or, or operate in that uh, reality this, uh, this Christmas season, I want to read something from the Old Testament. There's a couple of references made in what Zechariah says that uh, God is just keeping his promise from of old. And I've already referred to that in a couple of previous messages here. But God has spoken of this and then it came to pass. But I want to go back to one of those times that God has spoken of it, maybe in a little bit of a, an odd way, but go back to Psalms. Uh, flip back in your Bibles with me to the book of Psalms. I'd like to read Psalm 130 for us this morning because I want to set the stage for what we're going to talk about and why I think the birth of Jesus Christ is, of course, the most fantastic news. The announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ is the most fantastic news that we could ever receive. Psalm 130 says this. May not start off as what we might think of a typical Christmas kind of uh, uh, text. Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And there's a connection to something we've talked about last week. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen for the morning. More than the watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, I'm going to ask you just kind of to, to hang on to that a little bit. We're going to refer to some of this psalm a little bit as we go through, but I want to just point out, as the psalmist walks through some things, there's some things that are revealed to us that's true deep down inside for all the Jewish people as they were awaiting this person they called the Messiah. And I submit to you this morning things that are true for every one of us deep down inside of us as we are become aware of our need for a Messiah. Look at what he says. He says, God, I'm crying out to you. Hear my voice. Why is he crying out to him? What does he need? You help me figure out from the text. What does he need? Why is he crying out to God and saying, I hope you can hear me, God? 
What's the very next thing out of his mouth? Or out of his pen? It's a cry for mercy. Why does he need mercy? I'm just going to keep pushing that on down. Why does he need mercy? Ah, look at verse 3. Look at the question posed in verse 3. I think it's a question you should uh, pay attention to this morning. And if you haven't caught on yet, at least so far, this is not maybe a very typical Christmas sermon. But it's a question you should pay attention to because it has everything to do with Christmas, by the way. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Someone translate that into like modern day how we would say things today. What did you just say? If God would know, or in this case, would keep track, if God would keep track of all of our sins, then what? Who would have a chance? Right? Isn't that in our plain English what we would say today if we were writing this psalm? God, if you would keep track of my sin, or anyone's sin, or everyone's sin, who would have a chance? <laughs> I don't know if you realize that, but there, that is a whole lot of really, really, really good, solid biblical theology in one little sentence. God, if you were to keep track of people's sins, if you were to mark them, if you were to take note of them and remember them and be aware of them, if you were to do that for everybody, who could possibly stand? Who would have a chance? Who could, who could ever hope or pretend that they were going to have a chance of making it? The answer, of course, is implied, right? The answer is no one. No one could. Which is why he's crying out and saying, God, hear my voice. I'm begging for mercy. I need mercy. And then, of course, he says, I'm hoping, I'm waiting, I'm putting my trust in you and in your word because you've said you're going to do something about it. Which is why I tell you Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, looking down at his baby boy, whom he, through the Holy Spirit, became aware or knew that he was going to be a forerunner for the next baby boy to be born of importance, which was Jesus Christ. And he looked at him and said, that whole long first sentence, blessed be God, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation. That's a strength. The horn is a symbol of strength, of salvation. Just like he said he was going to, he's going to save us from our enemies. He's going to show us the mercy he's promised us so that we being delivered from our sins, from our enemies, might serve him in holiness and righteousness. So let's just jump in here. We talked about the very first week when we talked about Christ has come, that God has visited us. That's the whole message which focused on the fact that God himself came here and visited us. He took on our skin, our flesh. He became like us. He inspected our need. He saw our need, and he knew he had to do something about it, and he did in Jesus Christ. And when God visits us, last week we focused on the fact that when God visits us, when God sees our need and becomes involved, then we receive mercy. We are the recipients of mercy, undeserved favor that we receive when God begins to inspect our need and see that we have great need. So today follows right on the heels of that because God, when Christ has come, we see that God has redeemed us. This word redeemed, I'm going to take it right out of the very first verse I read. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has redeemed his people. I say things like this all the time from scriptures. I hope that uh, it makes sense to you when I do that because I have lots of these kind of favorite things. But this word redeemed, I think, is a word that should be oh so precious to us as believers. 
It should be one of the most treasured words that we know, one of the most incredible words that we can utter out of our mouths, this word redeemed or this idea of redemption. If we believe what the psalmist said in Psalm 130, that if God were to keep track of our sins, none of us would have a chance of standing before him or of making it. If we believe that, then the word redemption is the sweetest word known to us. I'm going to put up a couple of words that have to do with this idea of the Greek words associated with redemption and the Hebrew words associated with redemption. I'm not going to give you those words because I don't think you need to know them. I want to give you the English words, the definitions. There's a couple, there's a, there's a number of connected words that share roots and, and are used in various contexts throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament with this idea, about this idea of redemption. And to give us a full flavor or idea of what this word redemption is all about, look at those words. That word can mean to ransom. What does ransom mean? What does ransom mean? I'm going to make sure we, I don't define a word with a word we don't know. What does ransom mean? Tell me. To buy back? Well, you can look at the next words, right? And to buy back. That's called cheating. That's okay. It's okay. Ransom is when someone is being held captive by someone they don't want to. Praise the Lord, by the way. All 17 missionaries from the Christian ministries have been released. I'm assuming you found that out. I sent a hotline out, but praise the Lord about that. But a ransom is when someone is being held captive against their will, and there's some kind of payment demanded for their release, and a ransom is that payment. That is, after all, what those uh, uh, people were after in Haiti, Right? They kidnapped them so they might extort a ransom, might get some kind of payment for that. A ransom is when you have to buy someone or pay for something so that you might have it back because it's, it's in some kind of captivity or some kind of place where it can't be free. That word also, redeemed, also carries the idea or connotation of loosening or being severed, in fact. And of course, immediately you should think of, of, of being tied in some way because that's, what, that's how, the, what the word, how the word's used, is that there's a, a severing, you're being loosened. By the way, it's why the word forgiveness has to do with redemption because that's what the word forgiveness means, is to loosen. That's literally what the word forgiveness means is to loosen or to send away. So to ransom is the opposite, right? So to forgive is me voluntarily loosening or sending away. To ransom or to redeem is me severing so that you can be free. So it's the same action from two different uh, kind of uh, uh, viewpoints there. To sever or to deliver. That's, again, here's the same idea. Salvation has to do with deliverance because deliverance implies that I can't do something for myself, but somebody delivers me. Somebody uh, frees me. Someone loosens me. Someone ransoms me. Someone redeems me. But also in the Old Testament, especially the word that's used uh, many times for redemption is the word cover, which I also love. There's such strong biblical uh, uh, visual pictures of being covered. To be redeemed means to be covered. Now, immediately when you see these kind of words, you recognize that this is, of course, a major, major, major theme in all the Bible. Like you think of these kind of words and you can think of all kinds of stories that illustrate God's redemptiveness, right? You can think of the Exodus, which we studied this morning in Sunday school, God's deliverance, God's ransoming, God's redemption. You can think of stories like Ruth. Ruth is a great story that actually hits a couple of those words, right? For first of all, she went to Boaz and wanted to be covered, right? She laid aside his garment and laid down there and said, will you cover me? She was asking to be saved, by the way. She was asking to be redeemed. 
That was her way. And the beautiful picture. It's just like what happens to you and I, by the way, when we come to Jesus, as we should, and say, will you cover me? By the way, it's this word cover is why writers like Peter talk about the fact that uh, uh, love covers a multitude of sins. There's that word covers. That's what love does. Love offers forgiveness or redemption. It offers the ability to be redeemed, a covering. By the way, in Ruth, then, is the literal redemption because Boaz does exactly that, right? He redeems her, which is a, a payout. He pays for her. He ransoms her. It's fun for me to use this example, and I can just sort of throw in there for you right now, ready to get you, wet your whistle a little bit. We're hoping to do the story of Ruth at Bible school this year because it's an incredible story that illustrates what God did for us through Jesus. So looking forward to that if God brings that all about. But you can think of other stories, right? David was delivered over and over again. He wrote that psalm I read earlier, and he was delivered over and over again out of the hands of Saul, out of the hands of the Philistine, out of the hands of his son, out of the hands of all kinds of people. All kinds of redemption happening. Read the Old Testament, and you are reading story after story after story after story of God's ransoming and buying back and loosening and severing and delivering and covering, or, in other words, God's redemption. And when Zechariah looked down at his son, and he said, Blessed be God, for he has visited his people, and he has redeemed them. I'm just going to tell you, you and I ought to celebrate Christmas for all that we have simply for that reason alone. Because when Jesus Christ was born, it was God visiting us and saying, I will cover, deliver, sever, loosen, buy back, ransom, redeem my people. God has done great things. God has done great things. Let me just... I love when the Psalms illustrate and illuminate and teach us what the rest of our text is about. So I often turn there. I read lots of Psalms as I'm preparing for sermons. Not all of them make it into the sermon, but uh, today there's another one that's going to. So turn to Psalm 111. I want to read that for us this morning to you. As we reflect God's redemption, God's uh, loosening, his, his covering of his people, Psalm 111 is, I think, a great response for us. Psalm 111 begins this way. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. I just interrupt myself for a little bit. By the way, that's exactly why. It doesn't have to happen every time, but that's exactly why when something really good happens in your life, it's absolutely 100% appropriate for you to walk up on a Sunday morning and pick up the microphone and share during sharing time and say words that sound like that. Because that's exactly. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption. 
He sent redemption to his people. His name was Jesus. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. May it even perhaps come out of our mouths a few times at our Christmas celebrations that God has sent redemption to his people. He's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Holy and awesome is his name. I said it, I interjected in the text. I hope you understand that. Sometimes I do that and I worry that you think I'm reading out of some weird translation. There's all kinds of extra words that you don't have. I interjected in there. He sent redemption to his people. His name was Jesus, right? When Jesus came, it was redemption. So let's talk about Jesus coming and being our redemption for Jesus himself reflected about that, right? When Jesus walked, he was a little baby when he came, but of course he grew up and as he walked about in his earthly ministry and he's out and about and all kinds of things happened. We could spend all week this week talking about all the things Jesus did in his ministry. I just want to highlight that Jesus himself reflected exactly what we're talking about this morning about the redemption because when he was being pressed about whether he should be the first or the last or or he should take advantage of the power that he clearly had over everyone, he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know that any of us can fully appreciate what it must be like to have absolute authority over everything and everyone and be able to command any situation in any direction you want to and then say things like this. I'm not here to be served, but I'm here to serve others and to give up my life as the money that will buy back other people's freedom. I don't think that we have any idea because we have never approached that level of power. I don't think we have any idea how how godly, how like God, how incredible that was on Jesus' part. By him and for him and through him were all things created. Nothing was created that was not created by him. In him all things are held together. He is the exact image of God. He is the exact imprint of God, it says elsewhere. In him God is revealed. He is fully God. He's fully man. All of those things came together. And somehow, when Christ came, our redemption was brought about because he had the obedience and the humility and the love for you and I that said, I did not come to be served by everyone else, though that is exactly what I deserve, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom. My life blood will run out of this body as a payment And this theme is something that was picked up by the writers of the New Testament scriptures. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, they wrote about it. For example, the writer of Hebrews says that when he entered into that sanctuary, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, I told you the word redeem or the form of that word should be one of our favorite words, but I just put another word right next to it. Well, I didn't. The writer of Hebrews did. That I think makes it even better, if you possibly can. 
Because it's one thing to be paid for, to be ransomed, to be bought back, to be loosened from all the things that held you back, all the sin that held you back, all the enemies that you have. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's one thing to have that happen, but when that turns out to be an eternal redemption, when will you no longer be redeemed? If you enter into this redemption, when will you no longer be bought back? When will you no longer be loosened? When will you no longer be covered? Never. If the word redemption could possibly be made any sweeter, it is by adding the word eternal in front of it. When Titus, well, when Paul wrote to Titus, if I get this correct, when Paul wrote to Titus, he wrote these words. I'm going to read it because I want to read the whole thing because it's one of the most fantastic sentences in all of Scripture. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Truly, this verse I was aiming at, but you want to hear the whole thing. It's this Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, now not only are you being, beginning to see or hoping uh, to flesh out seeing that Jesus came to redeem us and did so by giving up his life, by his blood flowing out, but also beginning to see what that redemption was for. Why was it that Jesus redeemed us? We're going to spend a lot more time with it next week, but we're going to at least uh, take a peek at it this week. According to this verse, why did, what did Jesus redeem us from? From all lawlessness. Peter picks up the same theme. He says, it is, uh, no, we should know that we were not ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Sorry. Knowing that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So in this case, we were ransomed from what? Not the lawless ways as Paul wrote to Titus, but we were ransomed from? Well, it turns out to the same thing, actually, just different words. From the futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers. What does the word futile mean? Once again, I, I'm a big believer that we should know the words we're reading because that, that's the only way it makes sense to us. What does futile mean? What's that? A waste of time. When I'm doing something and my efforts are futile, it means I'm not going to get anywhere. Right? I'm not going to be successful. I'm gonna, it's going to be a waste of time in the end because I'm not going to accomplish my goal. So the ways that we inherited, the ways of doing things, the ways we act and the ways we think and the ways we treat each other and the ways we uh, think we're going to do, all the things, all, the, all of our ways that we've inherited from our forefathers, all the ways that seem so natural to us in our flesh, all of those ways are futile. They will not accomplish the goal that we want. In the end, it will be a big, giant waste of time. I would actually call spending an eternity in hell away from my creator a really big, giant waste of time. It's much worse than that, actually. That was pretty nice. But at, even at that, it certainly is that. We have been ransomed, and Jesus Christ was the one who did it. Well, turns out I could have just saved us all that jumping around Scripture and just come right into the text we started off with this morning because when Zechariah was looking at his son John and he was praising God that he has visited his people and has redeemed them, he actually said the very same thing in them. He said that he has redeemed them that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I want this to be not just some kind of theoretical kind of exercise that we're doing this morning, some kind of like, let's get together and do what we always do on Sunday mornings and learn all about the stuff that's out there kind of thing. But I want it to be practical and personal. I would invite you for a few moments here that I'm going to give you. I would invite you 
to think carefully and honestly and sincerely about the enemies that you have been saved from through Jesus Christ. If it's true that Jesus brought redemption that we should be saved from our enemies, what are those enemies? Who are those enemies? Mostly, what are those enemies? We do have a who. But before you say anything out loud, I just want you to actually think about it yourself. Think about your own personal life. Take a little reflection. I'm not doing this so that you may dwell in things that happened in the past, but I want you to be aware of the journey you have been on in your life. And I want you to think about the enemies that you have been saved from. I want you to think about the enemies you've been saved from because I want you to realize that the thing you're celebrating this week, the holiday that you have coming up, the reason you've been getting there with the family and giving gifts and having good old time together, the reason that you have this as a celebration is because a tiny little baby was born in all of its innocence, but it was actually God putting on flesh and visiting his people and redeeming his people so that you could be saved from those things you were just thinking of. I don't know if we should even be so bold this morning to see if anybody's willing to say any of those things out loud. What enemies were you saved from? Anybody willing to share? Lynn said himself. I don't know how things shape up in your world, but I think that's... <laughs> Chief enemy number one. Fear. First thing I thought of for me is pride. Yeah, death. Final enemy, very clear in scripture. Final enemy for us is death because death is the power of sin over us. Demon? Do we not remember Psalm 111? Should I read it for you again? Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Are those all the, maybe you have all the same enemies, but are those all the enemies we faced? Anyone else want to testify to what God has redeemed them from, the enemies he set them free from through Jesus Christ? Negative thoughts. Unforgiveness. Oh, what a prison that is. You know, the birth of Jesus won't mean a whole lot if we aren't aware of what we've been saved from. Yeah, no one's mentioned Satan yet, but clearly one of our arch enemies is the 
the one who hates us and wants to destroy us, Satan. Ruby, you also said from going the wrong ways. Ignorance, right? You're all sitting in a room, just had the Bible read to you, and I referred to a story that you were all mostly very, very familiar with. You were saved from the enemy of ignorance. Think of how many people in this world have never heard that story. And most of us would say, a lot of them, it's not their fault, right? It's not their direct fault. It's the futile ways of their forefathers that they've inherited that has them living in darkness. Undoubtedly, there are plenty more that we could talk about, and this is not about guilting people into saying things. But I am not going to shy away from the fact that for this to be a legitimate Christmas celebration, I believe it requires you to understand what you have been redeemed from. I'd like to close this morning. I'm just going to move that off the screen. I'm going to close. I'm going to go back to Psalm 130 real briefly here. I just want to read it for us again. I want to set it in, prepare us for next week, prepare us for a Christmas celebration. I'm going to set it in for us once again. I'm just going to read it right straight through for you. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Remember last week we talked about, I told you I was going to read straight through, and I can't even do that. Last week we talked about the morning sun rising. It's the same reference here. It's the light that's just starting to edge into the darkness. And my soul, the psalmist says, is waiting for it, is longing for it. Oh, Israel, he says in verse 7, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He's not going to run on anytime soon. And he will redeem Israel. He will redeem all of us from all of his iniquities, all of our iniquities. This is the treasure of Christmas. This is why we look forward to and anticipate the day coming that we can celebrate. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. Christ has come, and when he has, he has brought with him plentiful redemption. I have seen his mercy. I hope you've been waiting for Christmas. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. I love that word wait. The Hebrew word is the word kavah. It does mean to look to, figuratively it means to look to or to expect something. But literally, for me, the power of that word comes in the literal definition because the literal definition of kavah is to bind something together by twisting. So when you're saying, I wait for the Lord, I'm expecting something, it actually is saying, I am... I'm twisting myself to him because I know that's where my hope is going to come. That way I don't, I don't, I don't drift away. I don't, I don't give up or I don't lose sight of it or I don't, I don't, I'm not separated. I'm going to wait. God said he's going to come through. I'm going to wait until he does. And to make myself wait, I'm actually, I mean, this is, this is me expanding the picture, but to make myself wait, I'm actually going to tie myself to him. Now, you can't actually do that literally, right? But that's all that's, 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 all that's tucked up inside of that word. I wait for the Lord. My soul's waiting I, in his word, I'm hoping, and I'm waiting for him, just like the watchman's waiting for that first ray of sunlight to come. May that kind of anticipation and waiting be true of our Christmas celebrations.
May that kind of desire and commitment to waiting for God be true in all those places where the enemy or ourselves still yet reign in our lives and we have not seen the full redemption of Jesus Christ work itself out in us. We're all, I mean, by the way, that's, that's a statement to all of us. That's not just a few of us who still haven't got it quite right. That's to all of us because none of us are in a perfect glorified heavenly bodies yet, which means we're still all walking that struggle. May the same kind of commitment to waiting and binding ourselves to God and putting our hope in his word that when he said Jesus came with plentiful redemption to forgive all of my iniquities, that that's actually, in fact, exactly why Jesus came. And I will wait and put faith and allow him to work that on me. And I will not... I will not allow my flesh to continue in his chains because I've been loo- they've been loosened. I, those chains have been severed in Jesus Christ. All kinds of things. But in the midst of our celebrations, I think we sometimes forget the glorious reality of the eternal redemption that was started off when Jesus came. I mean, it really was started before then because God knew, but it, we saw the beginnings of it when Jesus was born. Pray with me if you would. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ that he has come, that he has brought with him redemption, saved us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. In Jesus Christ was life, and that life was the light of men, and we want to walk in that light. We want to uh, receive that light. We want to receive that life that Jesus brought when he came. Help us, Father, to live in that light. Help us to wait upon you to cling to you, to put our hope in your word, which declares for us that we have been set free when we are in Jesus Christ, whom the Son has set free, is free indeed. We have been redeemed. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to the enemy. We don't belong to anybody else other than you, Father, through Jesus Christ. May we find ways, Father, this week to bring the theme of redemption and being ransomed out in our Christmas celebrations. For it is to Jesus that we cling to. It is to him that we look. And it is in him that we long to be and remain covered. For he has redeemed us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.